We're going to look at the 90th Psalm today. I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 90 and follow along. It is a psalm that is dated traditionally from the late part of Moses' life. And it's a psalm that speaks eloquently of his experience. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Our Father, beyond the voice of a mere man, I pray that you would speak to us through this psalm, this work that your Holy Spirit inspired Moses to give us, that we might be strengthened and directed in the things of Christ. Amen. The psalm has two principal parts. First part is a reflection on the eternity of God over against the weakness and transitory nature of man. Another psalmist, in Psalm 78, verse 33, he says, Our days vanish like a breath, like vanity. The same word that we find in Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, 
all is vanity. And so over against God's permanence and his greatness, we are confronted with our frailty and our impermanence. These metaphors are so telling. We're like a dream, like grass that withers, like dust on the scales. Our lifespan, what are 70 and 80 years compared to the Lord? A thousand years are as fleeting as a watch in the night. There's a wonderful section in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy is confronted by Aslan, who is a figure of the Christ King. And she says to Aslan, you've gotten bigger. And he says, no, no child. But every time as you grow and you see me, you will see me as bigger. And it's a message for you and for me too. Every time we reflect on him to see him bigger, bigger and bigger. He appears to be larger to those who have grown in grace. Part of our frailty is expressed in these words. We are brought to an end by your anger. And that, of course, is the result of judgment. All our days pass away under your wrath. And they're characterized by toil and trouble, Moses says. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, we read in the book of Job. And the part of it that we are most convicted by is the fact that our sins have brought us to this place. In verse 8 of the psalm, we read, All our sins are before your face. The ESV has presence. It's the word face. He is the judge of all the earth. And as we read in Hebrews 4, verse 13, we must all give an account of ourselves before God in that day. That day of that great assize, each of us must give an account of himself before the Lord of glory. Augustine said that there is a private Sodom within each of us. You recall that event in Genesis 18 where Abraham intercedes on behalf of these people who are about to be judged by God. And he says, as he speaks on behalf of this errant people, he says, shall not the God of all the earth do right? Yes, he will do right. All must experience his evaluation. Man tends to resist recognizing the connection between his mortality and sin, but the two are inextricably wed together. Our culture takes sin lightly. That is until the Spirit of God brings it home to us in a way that only the Spirit of God can do. 
And so, having reflected a bit upon the eternity of God and our weak transitory nature, we have as the second part of the psalm this heartfelt plea for compassion, for relief, for a sense of accomplishment. Moses is the great intercessor for the Jews in the Old Testament. He is considered the facts of time, of God's wrath, and of the inevitability of death. And he cries out, Adonai, O Lord, you have been our dwelling place or refuge. In Psalm 71, verse 3, he is called our rock of refuge. I should not have survived this long, either morally or physically, were not God my refuge and strength. Let me hear an amen. amen. We Presbyterians don't usually do that, do we? But we do, we do find him as our refuge and our strength. And we turn to him all the time. So this heartfelt plea of, of Moses breaks down into several parts. We're going to talk about just three, a threefold petition that the psalm comprises. First, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In the Old Testament, Israel considered three books in particular to be characterized by wisdom, the word wisdom, wisdom literature. The books are Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. They're different in some respects, but in one respect, they're all the same in that they ask one question. And the question is, have we gained a heart of wisdom? Proverbs says in chapter 8, verse 5, which our ladies have probably already studied as they have been going through the book of Proverbs. It says, Wisdom raises her voice at the crossroads and cries aloud, Learn sense. Learn common sense. And as uh, our brother Drew has been leading us in the New Testament book of James, we cannot uh, overlook these words. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who giveth freely and abradeth not. I love the King James Version. Who giveth freely and abradeth not. Jesus talks about a fool lacking wisdom. In Luke chapter 12, verse 13 and following there is the story of a man who has a great deal of wealth and he doesn't know what to do with it. And so he's going to build more barns and more facilities to house all of his wealth. And then he's going to just say to himself, well, I'm just going to take it easy and enjoy all the produce that I have. And Jesus says, God speaks to him and he says, fool, fool. 
and that's the Hebrew word kasil he would have used, a man lacking in discernment. Tonight, your life is required of you. Tonight, your soul is required of you. Verse 20. Think of the words of the poet Longfellow. Time is long and life is fleeting. To dust thou returnest was never spoken to the human soul. Your soul continues after death. And you must stand before God and give an account of yourself. So Moses is writing this psalm to try to encourage his people to realize the wisdom that is theirs through the scriptures. Surely the people is, the people is grass, Isaiah says in chapter 40. And yet, God is still present to encourage a people who are captive, who are weak and wounded, a people whose hope had been lost in a foreign culture and who would eventually spend 70 years in exile. 70 years. You think that would be a time sufficient to get some wisdom? Maybe 70 years isn't enough unless the Holy Spirit, of course, is working. So we move to the second petition. First, having been a cry for wisdom, the second, Moses says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Whenever I read these verses, I think of uh, Psalm 30, verse 5, which was uh, the text that a friend of mine, Rachmiel Friedland, a Jewish man, uh, took as his favorite verse. Rachmiel lived in Europe during the time of the Nazi atrocities, and the Nazis were after him. And he had a hard life. And this Psalm 30, verse 5, was his verse. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Oh, that we might have joy in the morning. You know, that's why Ecclesiastes speaks so eloquently to us. When in chapter 12, we read the word of the preacher, remember the creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. And I think of the words of that great Scottish uh, pastor, Samuel Rutherford, who said to sailors, he said, be sure to mend your sails before the storm. While the weather is nice, Fix your sails. Yes, before the evil days come, let us be ready for them. Moses saw imperfectly, of course. 
Other comforting words for us? Well, we want to go beyond the Old Testament, even though they're there. We find them far more reaching and helpful when we read the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Do we see the unseen reality? Hopefully that's what brings us here every Lord's Day, the unseen reality. It is a secret wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7, a secret wisdom for just those to whom the Spirit speaks the words of life. The unimagined blessings God has prepared for those who love him. I don't love him as I ought to, but I know there's no other source of help in this fallen world. And so our plight is before us. We are brought to an end by your anger. You have set our iniquities before us, Moses says, our secret sins in the light of your face. And that's the exact antithesis of the blessing of Aaron which you often hear in worship services as a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his face upon you. And the word face continues in the original Hebrew, even though we, we use presence when we often give the benediction. The opposite of Aaron's blessing brought to an end by God's anger. Psalm 95, verse 10, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and I swore in my wrath they shall never enter my rest. Well, those are words to bring you down. And I think of the words of C.S. Lewis. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. And so we come to the third petition. The second, being satisfy us with your chesed, your loving compassion in the morning. Now, he says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. That's in verse 17. The word favor is the word noam, and it's the same word from which we get the name Naomi. Pleasant. Gracious. 
But in order for graciousness to be our portion, something has to be done with this problem of our iniquities, which Moses lays out very clearly before us. The word iniquity in the Hebrew is something that is twisted. Not only twisted, but as the word is used in the Old Testament, it means something that has to be brought into account. It has to be dealt with. It can't just be left there uh, floating about. It has to settle somewhere. Where will the iniquities settle? On us? Well, hopefully not. And that's why we turn to Isaiah 53, verse 6, and we see the word iniquities in a different way. We see it in a positive way. We see Isaiah saying, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own ways. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Mm. And then Moses prays, oh God, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He says it twice. As you and I look back on our lives, some of us are well advanced in our years now. We do want our lives to have counted for something. We look back and we hope that we will have made a difference in the lives of others for good, in some small way at least. And perhaps this was one of the thoughts that the people had when they asked Jesus the question. In John chapter 6, Lord, what must we do to do the works of God? Those works that will abide. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God hath sent. One of the great moments in New Testament come to us when Moses, and not only Moses, but Elijah, appeared in glory and spoke with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Luke's Gospel, we read that Chapter 9, verse 31. They spoke to Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His departure, which is the word exodus, isn't it? Yes. Spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That was, that was his work to bring about an exodus, a new exodus. Any work we do is insufficient. Moses tried to use his hands, remember, when he was a young man, to try and effect some kind of liberation for his people. What happened to him? He realized this was a complete waste of time. Not only that, I've become a murderer, and I've got to get out of here. And he spent his next <laughs> how many years in Midian? evading capture until God spoke to him about when he was 80 years old and said, I've got a new work for you to do. 
but it's based on my work, not on your work. When I worked at CBS back in the 60s, there was a cameraman with whom I was close, and uh, one day he called me and said, Stu, how would you like to go and see the Pieta at the World's Fair with me? He said, I have received permission to go in and take photos beyond the ropes, right up to the work itself, Michelangelo's extraordinary work of Jesus dying, having died, and in the lap of his mother. And I said, I'd love to do that. I had just become a believer myself at that time. And I remember seeing this extraordinary work of Michelangelo. Uh, there was, it was late at night. There were, the, the World's Fair was closed down for the day. But we, we, we went behind the ropes, and I could touch the statue. It's interesting that uh, a contemporary author had taken note of this extraordinary work, and he wrote these words. Could there be a more contrary statue to place across from St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York than Atlas? who attempted to overthrow the gods on Mount Olympus, the very personification of hubris and brute strength, while back in the depths of the cathedral was the statue's spiritual antithesis, the Pieta, in which our Savior, having sacrificed himself to the Father's will, is represented broken and laid at the lap of Mary. Two worldviews separated only by Fifth Avenue, facing off until the end of time as we know it. With whom do we identify? With what do we identify? Where is our hope to be grounded? Oh, what wonder. How amazing, Jesus, glorious King of kings, deigns to call me his beloved, lets me rest beneath his wings. We're going to sing that in just a moment. But as you recall that statue of, of Christ, his nail-pierced hands offered up to the Father on our behalf for us. Amen. Our Father, here we have no continuing city. We go to Christ outside the gate for more than forgiveness, but for hope everlasting. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.